Sans Pants Radio, Australia's most family-friendly podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Demarellis. This is a show we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, I have diversity and inclusion consultant. She's written for The Guardian. She's a broadcaster with the ABC and also a potentially... Well, you don't look very hungover, but you are a big Richmond fan and <laughs> the granny just happened. And I don't know how touchy this topic is or whether you're tired of it, but uh, yeah, I just thought I'd start off with that. <laughs> yes, go Tigers. We did just win our third premiership in five years, uh, four years. You're losing some serious credibility. The <laughs> I know. I just said it and it sounded wrong. And I was like, what is going on in my brain? Um, it's been a big weekend, what can I say? Although it hasn't been a big weekend because I'm in Melbourne and I was in my home watching it. And normally I would have been at the MCG and up all hours of the night celebrating and then at family day. So it was a weird grand final. But yes, I work at Richmond Footy Club. So pretty happy. Yeah. You'd be wrapped, right? That's a but it is a weird experience. Mm. Oh, like you so get to weird. win, but you don't get to enjoy it. So, and also, what was with this? I'm, this is deep Melbourne talk right now that is only relevant yes. about three yes. days of the year. But what was with this late start? <laughs> that was insanity. That was so crazy. It finished at like ten thirty. <laughs> I, I, I have no words. It was excruciating and. It was even worse because we couldn't go anywhere in Melbourne. So, I mean, I had a three-hour nap because I was like, well, I either sit here and be nervous and really annoyed that I can't do anything or I just go to sleep. So I just put myself to sleep (laughs) and woke up about an hour before the game, which served me well because then I could stay up to watch it. But it it was so weird. AFL Grand Finals are a day game. Yeah, exactly. You got to get you know get the barbecue going. Everyone comes around for some drinks. I'm a big fan in general of daytime. Forget nighttime. I'm sick of nighttime. <laughs> you like day drinking? Ah, day everything. <laughs> so I just I want to be in bed by like eleven, and then I got the rest of the day. I don't think hangovers even exist. They're just me being tired from going to bed late. No, well. And that's the thing. If it was a if it's a day game, you can still have as much celebration as you want and still be in bed like at a reasonable time. And then you have a whole next day to continue and enjoy. Like it just I don't know. I don't know what rugby's doing having it at night either. You know, I'm convinced there is not a single person who was like, that was better at night. I don't think there's a single no. person anywhere. Because it's just it's and they're like the ratings are good. I said, like, no, that's because we were all at home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've got like 100,000 extra people who weren't at the G who were watching it. <laughs> exactly. So that's your Richmond side of things, I guess. So you've written for The Guardian, but you I know when I said you were a writer, you were like, oh, you know, I don't want to be committing too much to that. Well, yeah, I mean, I should say what I do at Richmond. So I'm their diversity and inclusion lead. So I work with the club on being a more inclusive place for particularly for marginalised communities who traditionally are left out of footy. And I do that now with other organisations as well. So weirdly, when COVID kind of shut a lot of things down, I picked up work, which is so strange, but a really nice thing to have happen. Um, so that's sort of my like professional hat in that sense. But then, yes, I've always wanted to be a writer for as long as I can remember. You know, when you're a kid and everybody for some reason asks you what you want to do when you grow up, which is so dumb because you're a kid. Like, you're not even thinking. 
Like 18 is so old when you're yeah, I know. You know, seven. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> I never understand that, why we're so fixated on asking young children what they want to be when they grow up. But my answer would always be an author. I just loved the idea of writing stories and I loved making up stories. So I've always done it, but I've never kind of pursued it as a Mm. profession really. And then, you know, out of school, did a creative arts degree and a creative writing major and still never went, oh, I should do this. Like this should be the thing that I do. It it was never on the cards for me in terms of, I think I was just as like, well, I'll never make any money doing this. So I can always just do this on the side. That's you're doing humanities degrees right with that kind of attitude. Exactly, exactly. What uni's about. (laughs) It's just never making any money. Yeah. And I weirdly went into a social work degree to make so much money because social workers make so much money. But I've always returned to writing in some shape or form and, you know, more recently that's been in the form of opinion articles that, you know, from time to time get published. But I feel like I've been writing a book for the last five years and I figure that there'll be a a day when I decide I'm going to actually do like commit to it and make it happen. I think that day is getting closer. <laughs> so when you say you've been writing a book for five years, you mean in your head? Uh, yes, partly in my head. Or you've actually written stuff? No, I've actually written stuff. I just, okay. <laughs> I write, I've got like short stories, basically. I look back at them now and I think, okay, this could probably form a book. Oh, so like a collection of like essay sort of short story things. Yeah. Loosely connected. Is it related to your own experience or are they kind of all over the place? It's so wanky because I rarely say this, but when I do tell people that, like, oh, what's your book about? Well, it's about me because I'm so interesting. <laughs> it's the most obnoxious thing you can say to a person, um, but it is about me. <laughs> <laughs> so at least you're honest about it, you know? Right. That's all right. I look, yeah. I mean, I don't know that I could write about anything else. Like, I don't know anything else. I'm not that writer that can write a a crime novel and research it and it's just not for me. I write what I know. So I've mined my life experience <laughs> for content. Okay, so b- before we go into the book, actually, because this I'm guessing is kind of relevant because your life experience, I guess, and which actually relates to the whole inclusivity, diversity thing as well. So your background is... What I is should, exactly? I, I should. Don't know. S- <laughs> I, I know. I was like, I should help you. I wasn't going to commit. I wasn't going to commit to a race. You think I'm crazy? I'm just going to throw one out there. Like, your name's Rana Hussein, but that doesn't actually narrow it down that much, to be honest. I'm just going to make. So you're 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 from the subcontinent, right? Like, you really wanted me to hang myself there, and I do not approve it. But I respect so your attempt for it. I'm so I was all over it though. Don't worry. <laughs> you think I'm stupid? That was so mean of me. I didn't I like we've just met and I totally hung you out to dry. Uh, <laughs> you did. I was born in Melbourne. My parents migrated here in the early 70s from India. And my family and I are Muslim. So I say that because I wear a hijab and that comes into play in such a big way for me in terms of identity politics, I guess, and how people perceive me, the assumptions they make about me. We all do that. We all look at a person and form an opinion based on the way they look. 
rightly or wrongly. And for me, a big part of that is the hijab. And so whenever I'm explaining to people where I come from, I feel like I have to explain that too. After leaving them out to dry for a bit. (laughs) You're regretting this already, are you? Actually, I'm going to ask, this might be a very dumb question, actually, and I just might be giving myself away. The last name Hussein, like obviously that's got a Muslim basis, Mm. I guess, right? So is that like chosen like historically as like you take that on when you join the faith or is that like a reflection of the faith? How does that work exactly? Because maybe last names work different in India completely too. The short answer is I don't really know. Like from my understanding, Islamically, you take on your father's name. And that's sort of a thing around lineage and being able to explain where you've come from and which family you belong to. So your father's name is actually a really important concept in Islamic tradition. In India, it's all over the place. So Yeah, that's why I'm asking. <laughs> women, are, women, they don't seem to have a last name a lot of the time. It's really weird. But I think for Western purposes, if you're moving to Western countries or for passports and stuff like it all seems to align around a first name and a surname (laughs) but it's almost like in India there's a whole bunch of women that are like Beyonce they're like Mrs or Miss Beyonce (laughs) like I would just be Lady Rana like it's technically that's the translation for a lot of women they have the name lady attached to their first name and that's their name. A fact like this, I'm going to have to be very careful about <laughs> saying too confidently because I can't leave this. We're going to be like, hey, guys, fun fact, Indian women only have one name. All of them. I feel like I'm going to need to double check this. No, okay, let me let me drill down. So the city that my family are from, Hyderabad, a lot of the women there don't have a surname or they're family surname. So the men do, but the women will have, it's like a respect as well. It's not seen as a, any kind of neglect or disrespect. It's like a honoring the, the women in the family. Um, so it is like calling, it'd be like calling me Lady Rana, which I kind of love now, <laughs> now that yeah. I've said it out loud. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yeah. It's like Lady Gaga, Lady Rana. <laughs> Changing all my social media handles. Never knew Lady Gaga was an Indian woman. <laughs> all this time. She, yeah. We never outed her. Um, <laughs> it makes so much sense. Look at she's so flashy and uh, dances and everything. Oh. Yes. Oh, it's, my God. She's been putting on Indian dress and no one realised. Everyone's been letting it off. This cultural appropriation, this criminal cultural appropriation. <laughs> Oh my god, that is so good! I need I need to see that um, photoshopped somehow. My family, for some reason, we all have a first name and a surname, like family name. So Hussein is just a Muslim name, a name of a prominent Muslim back in the day. Who and yeah, it's just kind of been passed down. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's very common. That's why Muhammad's the most popular name in the world, right? Because there's that that, yeah. that that tendency there. I mean, funny enough, the Greeks actually have something semi-similar, which is like a very village thing. But the idea is that you name your kids after your your firstborns after your dad, and then the middle mm. name is your name, which is like leads. That's why the Greeks only have like ten names. <laughs> like everyone's yeah, right, right, everyone's right. called George or John or James mm. or, or like or Dimitri or Con. Nick. Yeah, Nick as well, yeah. So there's, I understand that tradition as well and I do get like the kind of keeping the tradition going, which I'm actually kind of a fan of in a weird way. The reason I bring this up is because let's let's mention the book that you've chosen mm. as your the one you want to talk about. Do you want to give a little bit of spiel on it? Yes. I picked Coconut Children by Vivian Pham. This came out in March this year and I read it 
pretty soon after that, which feels like so long ago. Like I think I read it at the start of the whole COVID fiasco. And it's basically about these two 16-year-olds, they're Vietnamese Australians living in Cabramatta in 1998. And they basically follows their story. They were childhood friends, but then as you do with childhood friends, you sort of lose touch and then they kind of reconnect at this age of adolescence. Um, And it's sort of like they're an odd couple really. And they find their way back together. And it's such a beautiful story. So well written. It's like adolescence bottled up in a, like the essence of what that time feels like, you know, put onto the page, especially, you know, growing up in the nineties and two thousands for me, like it was, I could just relate so much to this book because it's very much in that adolescent voice. It also kind of looks at poverty in Australia and multiculturalism and trauma that often comes with migrating to a new country after war and that intergenerational divide, particularly as experienced by migrant kids or kids of migrants, um, which is something that's really close to home for me. And so it's beautiful. Like it's so honest and, but it's beautifully written. So much of it is like reading poetry. And it reminds me a lot of Alice Pung's Unpolished Gem. I don't know if you, have you read that or heard of that book? No, no. Alice Pung wrote a book very similar about being Vietnamese growing up in Footscray and really told that story in so much detail. And I guess so rarely, especially for me growing up here, I saw stories of multicultural Australia played out and played out honestly. As in in real life? In Media and pop culture. Yeah, 90s and, yeah, you didn't really get... No, like Acropolis Now is probably the one that yeah. I think <laughs> That's all we got. By the way. But yeah, yeah, but that's all we got. And, like, we would at least relate to it because we're like, well, I get some of this, this, some of this tracks for me, even though we weren't Greek. Even now to read stories of multicultural Australia in that time is really... I, I feel seen, even though it's not my community... I'm Victorian, this is New South Wales, not Vietnamese, but there's so much that I relate to. Yeah, well, I mean, the classic, I think that that gap that happens between the parents and the children is interesting because I'm the same. Both my parents Mm. were born in Greece and came here. And especially I think right now, because things have changed so much, you really notice that gap quite a lot. And also they've just come from a different experience altogether, like as in not just their world, but also them coming, when they were, when they came to Australia, it was so different to what it is now. Like, yeah. like my parents were Greek, so they were kind of like, <laughs> Greeks were basically not white. And then all of a sudden, like in about 2001, they're like, nah, you're white now, it's done. And we just, we just got lumped in with the whites and it was over for us. So we got none of this. It was Isn't a very clean crazy? transition, which no one, like that's why you talk to people now being like, I'm not, I'm not white, I'm like, I remember not being white. <laughs> I didn't get any of the benefits of this. <laughs> That's amazing because 2001 is not that long ago either. Like, I feel like... You're, you're showing your uh, age a little bit there, I think. Oh, am I? <laughs> well, I'm saying because I feel like anyone who, like, was old enough to remember the year 2000, it will never feel that long ago. <laughs> but it was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, the, the, that cultural divide is a big thing and... I feel like what often happens to kids, children of migrant families is that they 
grow up really quickly in a lot of ways and they do a lot of their own parenting because they're just things that their parents don't get or understand about what it's like to grow up here. So you're doing a lot of things, even if they're physically there, you feel a bit alone in in some respects because your parents can't really relate or understand what you're going through. And that's true of all parents and kids, I think, but there's an added layer of that often for kids and migrants. And you, you really see that in this book, that the parents are really absent in a lot of ways and that the kids are living these lives that their parents just cannot understand. Even, even while they're there. Yeah, exactly. Um, did you have any brothers or sisters? Yes, I have two sisters and a brother, all older than me. Oh, so you had it sweet then. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I absolutely did. Yes and no. I had it sweet in that by the time I came around, my parents were way less strict. They'd given up, yeah. Yeah, but but even still, my parents' version of giving up is still quite strict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't get a lot of like scrutiny compared to my siblings. But at the same time, I also didn't get as much attention either. It's good and bad. There's a lot to unpack in that statement. I know. <laughs> I, sort of like, I hope my parents don't listen to this. <laughs> Just tell me off, all right? Just give me attention. <laughs> if you cared about me, you wouldn't let me go outside. <laughs> True in some respects. I mean, my siblings would be, they would be rolling their eyes if they could hear this. You got to do so much more than we did. Uh, that's a deeply problematic relationship. There. It's like you, you limit my freedoms because you love me. <laughs> well, look, I guess I can feel the judgment coming off you right now. Nah, look, I'm with you. Not like these white parents go run around and do whatever. <laughs> Feel whatever you feel. No, you you feel what I tell you to feel, all right? Yeah, exactly. By the time I was a teenager, my parents were really like in their careers. They were really established. They're super busy. There was a lot of other stuff going on for us. Um, and I think I got left to my own devices a little bit, which meant that like out of my siblings and I, I'm the one who's the most into pop culture and television and film because I think I'd done that's what I did. Like I was, yeah. you know, left to watch a lot of TV. They're the ones who loved you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You said it, not me. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> I think being the youngest as well, you pick up all your older siblings' pop culture interests too. So like I had the benefit of just hanging around all the time. Like, and I, you know, like I watched Beverly Hills 90210 and now I think, what were my parents doing? Like I should not have been watching that. I was way too young. Same with like, you know, Degrassi. And I know what my mum was doing. She was busy cooking and getting stuff, you know, sorted. She worked all day and then we'd come home and watch TV while she could get organised. So I yeah. get it, especially now being a mum, I totally get it. All right, okay. And I, I, uh, actually to relate to what we were talking about before, the Richmond Football Club, was that a family thing? No. Being Indian, we grew up with cricket. And even then I was sort of like, oh, this is for the boys. It's not really for me, but we would watch, all watch it. And then footy was sort of what was on when there wasn't any cricket on. And so it would be on TV. Growing up in Essendon, we all kind of, Barracked for Essendon, but not really. Like it was just what you told people when they said who's your footy team. Then as a teenager, I got taken to a footy, my first game of football with a friend and her family. And I just fell in love with the game. Like absolutely. It was love at first sight, really. Really? It was, yeah. It, it, 
think it was a combination of it was an exciting evening. So Melbourne Western Bulldogs on a Friday night at the MCG. Melbourne were in good form, so don't don't think about the current Melbourne. <laughs> and it was loud, boisterous. These athletes were like leaping and tackling and I'd never been in an environment like that, even though I'd been to the cricket a fair bit. You know, my family's quite conservative, very sensible. We would never scream and shout like that in public. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was like, it just, it was an environment where I felt like I could unleash and not to mention just the, like the spectacle that the game was. Like it looked like chaos to me. I had no idea what was really going on, but it was exciting and, everybody yelling ball, like that, you know, stuff like that just hooked me in. And so I fell in love and from then I started to follow it and became like a huge fan of the game. As I got older, realised it was deeply problematic because there weren't any women. There weren't really people of colour. The way Indigenous players were treated, I didn't love. That's such a polite way of saying it. <laughs> well, I, wasn't a, I wasn't a huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the problem with being a sports fan. You can love the game and hate the environment that it's played in. Mm. If you are a critical thinker, sport can be deeply problematic. And I found that more and more as I understood context of AFL and it just started to become you know and then I started to look at uni like I I probably took on the identity of being a feminist Um, and then you know you have players who are treating women poorly and a league who can't really deal with that properly and so you just you can't ignore that stuff and it, it started to create a real unrest inside of me because I really enjoyed this game and truly loved going to games but hated that my money was going to something that wasn't I didn't feel like was doing enough for our society and then all the Adam Good stuff happened it, that was it I just decided like I can't keep watching stuff like this and I'd started volunteering for the AFL as a multicultural ambassador but then after Adam Goods that season I just went look I love this thing so much that it's occupying my mind and time and I'm thinking about it maybe I should throw my hat in the ring and see if I can actually instead of just being disgruntled, maybe I should do something about it. I just started talking to the few networks that I had and said like you know if there's a job where I could maybe do something in this space, let me know. And it just, like within the space of three months, I heard Richmond are looking for someone. Why don't you go meet with them? And it, it was like a really great first date. <laughs> just <laughs> they, they loved me, I loved them, and then we, we went from there and I've been there for four years now. So you're technically not really a Richmond fan. <laughs> you no. just work for them. This is how I explain it. So Melbourne is the team that I follow, but... Working for the club means it's become a really personal thing and you know the players and you know the staff and it also directly impacts me and my life and my work. So now I describe it as it's love for both because people are like, how could you leave your old team and how could you take on a new one? I say I still have both, but it's like the love you have for your father versus the love you have for your partner. It's still love but it's just a very different kind of love. <laughs> oh, so much to unpack even there, I tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I feel like your head just keeps exploding every time I say something. Oh, there's so much to look at with all, like this. Cause it's really interesting how that intersects with obviously like you growing up and having, I mean, to go back even further, it sounds like the footy was an outlet where you were completely separate from the family a little bit, where you could just do your own thing. I don't know how that much consciously played into it, but like I guess one of the things you mentioned how you weren't given as much attention, weren't as strictly ruled, I guess, as the other kids, but you still weren't letting it out, right? Is that what you're saying? Until like you, you still had to be quiet, I guess. Yeah. Polite. Yeah. Not bad, I just mean polite and then totally. do this footy game and had that. Decorum, yeah. I think decorum was a big is a big thing in my family and in my culture, really. And footy definitely. I think it probably was a more subconscious thing. Yeah, footy, there's no decorum. There's no decorum. Or you'd have license to have no decorum. So people are often, especially when they see me, they're surprised that I'm a sports fan and I haven't had really experience playing sport like a bit at school. But the way I relate to sport is like it's an alien universe for me. And so I'm just forever fascinated by people who can play the game and how it's played and how it's run because it's so out of my experience. Like I I, I realise that other people watch sport and relate to it on some level because they played it. Whereas for me, it's like it's like watching superhumans do something incredible and, and that's why I love it. That's the level on which I love it. You, you, you like to focus on yourself for the personal reasons where you're telling your own stories, but then you're getting attracted to this thing which is so completely outside of yourself. And it seems interesting contrast there with that. That's true. And I guess because of your background with your like being Muslim and you're wearing the hijab and all that stuff, was that a thing that stood out when you first were going to the games? Was that, was it, I guess, was it ever an issue? Did, would people ever say anything? Yeah, it is an issue. I remember going to for the first time to the members section because I used to just sit in the Southern Stand um, or the Ponsford, but then I went to the members for the first time and people, it was palpable that people were kind of looking at me and then people would like shake my hand and say like, welcome. Like, so really coming from a great place. (laughs) Good on you. Yes. A lot of like, oh, it's so great to see you. Oh, like, and just big smiles because they're just so happy to see me there, which is equally (laughs) weird. I want people to understand that when you do that... (laughs) It's just as alienating and you read it, it just makes you just as uncomfortable as if you give me a greasy. So anyway, there's a, there's a bit of that. But I think it's changed even over like the last 10 years, I would say it's changed a lot. I think Basha Hawley's done a lot for the game on that level. And I think the game itself has become a more inclusive place and people sort of understand that all types are now enjoying the game. Actually, just quickly, when you say you're the inclusivity, diversity kind of representative person, what does that mean? <laughs> Are they like, hey, I've got this ad. <laughs> Is there anything on it I'm doing wrong? And you're like, yeah, that's all wrong. Is that, what does it mean? It's different at every club. At our club, it's we've identified that we have a really good record engaging with Indigenous communities, but we realised a couple of years ago when I started that we weren't really talking to culturally diverse communities, we weren't talking to queer communities and we weren't talking to people with disabilities on any level. So we've started to build 
relationships with those people in those communities. So we look at like what a game day looks like for people from those communities. We also look at how our building is set up. We look at what programs we offer and what our hiring practices are like, how people from marginalised communities feel when they work at our club, what does our branding and communications look like, are we representative of the community we want to serve. So it's kind of like there's two, it's two-pronged. It's looking at our outward-facing stuff, but it's also looking at our culture internally as well. So I basically am just forever like pointing the finger at everyone. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> Which is a tricky place to be, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could imagine. Don't be, but that sounds like it's a, it's for a good purpose. And you are bringing your own personal stuff into this alien world in a way and helping it develop in that sense. So that's good. Ultimately, I think, and it's not just in sport, I think the place we want to get to is that you don't have to change who you are necessarily to belong to feel like you belong. So from a footy perspective, you know, if we want people to come and interact with our brand and our footy club and be on board with Richmond, we don't want them to feel like they have to hide parts of who they are, be different to who they are to be part of that. I think when I first started enjoying football, I did feel like I had to sound a certain way, speak a certain lingo, know certain stuff about the game to get by. And I didn't like that. I just wanted to enjoy it in the way I enjoy it. And, you know, I want people to feel comfortable to do that as well. And, and, and it's good for the club because it obviously gets more people in through the door and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's always good branding. You're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> look at us. We're inclusive. Well, and this is the thing. Like people often say to me like, oh, it's just a marketing exercise. And I sort of feel like, I mean, the anti-capitalist in me is not comfortable with that. But putting that aside, like what's wrong with that? Like if organisations are pushed to be more inclusive because ultimately they want to make money, like that's a win-win, right? I don't know what else motivates people. Like whether it's the right thing to do or not, people can argue that if it's good for business and it means people are like, and it adds to kind of social cohesion outcomes, then I don't really have a huge issue with that. 100% agree. Like to go back to, so this idea, because I guess I haven't read the book Coconuts Children, mm-hmm. so go back to that for a sec. So, But it, but it, it seems to be very much about this uh, community, like immigrant experience because they're first generation and then they separated and come back and all that and the difference between them and their parents, I guess. Mm. But it sounds like with your case as well, you had that gap from your parents, but you also had it from your siblings a little bit. Is that a fair thing to say? A little bit or is that not really? Yeah, yeah. I think that's just my family. My oldest sibling is 12 years older than me. So we really are very different generations. Your eldest sibling? Yeah. So so the oldest, between me and the eldest is 12 years. And so the other two are in between that. I don't know if, I guess it's a nature nurture question, but I am very different within my family. So probably more outgoing more out there in terms of engaging with the broader community. I've done more. I'm open to more, like to trying new things. They're very kind of, very migrant in terms of go to school, do really well, go to university, do really well, get a job that you stay in for the rest of your life and 
fennel down had like that's the track and that was the track set out for me and I at every turn have kind of (laughs) diverted and I've tried to stay on it it's just I can't help but divert off it (laughs) so uh, I think something that um I loved about this book was the main character Sunny is it's a really truthful representation of what it's like to be a girl who has wants and desires that are and sights outside of what is set out for her already. And I found that really compelling about her character. She's different to what's expected of her. She's got this inner world that people don't seem to know about. And internally, she's got so much desire, even sexual desire. She's got the hots for the the other character, Vincent. Um, And, you know, people would never guess that about her, about how much she thinks about sex or thinks about, you know, all these other, you know, reads a lot wants to experience so much of life. And I think that that was so relatable and something that I definitely related to of having this kind of internal world that people probably wouldn't think that you do have. So so that's interesting because like my first thing is, oh, because people um, from different cultures would look at you and do a stereotypical thing of you and not think of you in that full sense. But it sounds like you also say that about your family looking at you and thinking that as well from kind of completely different reasons. You've got Definitely. that same issue. So that's from both sides. This is on me too. Like I don't, I think I did a lot of hiding who I probably am growing up, trying to fit into the family mould, but really inside knowing I was very, very different and wanted different things to what was what I was directed to kind of want. Um, so, yeah, definitely. I find all the time that I feel like who I am on the inside is very different to what people think I am or assume I am when they see me. Does everybody have that? I just- no, it's just you. <laughs> I'm so glad. Create is such a safe environment here. <laughs> uh, we got you. We knew it. Everyone get her. She's the, she's the only one that acts like this. She's faking. It's got we all we all have an element of that, right? No, no. We, it's it's so common, and I, and I think that's like that's what's so interesting, and that's why I was kind of like talking because you might feel like that for different reasons from different people, but everyone feels like that for different reasons from different people as well. Like some you're like, oh, maybe because of uh, your background, whether that's your religion or your nationality, people might be putting you to a box, but then your parents are also doing Everyone's doing it. Everyone's looking at everyone and making assumptions. And sometimes you feel like maybe, yeah, you don't get represented the best for whatever reason. To actually go into that, which is interesting. Actually, there's two things I want to talk about with this. So one is, okay, firstly, this bit of a tangent, but... Uh, you were well aware of, obviously, by going through this inclusivity thing, you're, you're probably aware of how the world sees maybe your culture and where your family's from and you don't agree with some of the things they're doing in terms of people simplifying and doing whatever and you think it can be better. So one of the things I was wondering is in terms of the rest of your family, do they give a shit or are they kind of like, whatever, that's how it is, don't worry about it and they just go along with their own thing? It's funny you ask that because it's come up over the last couple of months they're a bit confused by the work that I do. Like they, in a general sense, are like, <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. We're proud of you. But they're also a bit like, but what What do you mean? And like, why? Why do you want to do this? I think ultimately they're like, they're sort of happy to be left alone and don't, I think on some levels, like I think in terms of racism, say, they're like, yeah, people need to work on that. We need to work on that as a society and every single one of my family members have experienced racism on some level. So they're very much like acknowledged that that's something that we all 
need to work on but they're probably like a lot more pragmatic and it's just like I'm not going to die on that hill like I'm not going to give my life up to work on it because I've got other things I have to do like make a living and look after my family and you know that it's not their cause I guess they have other stuff that's more pressing to them and you know they're very very religious so for them faith and following the faith as best you can is a big part of how they live. I'll be honest, for some of them, they don't think, you know, working in football is the best thing a Muslim woman could do with their time. I oh, said so literally from that perspective, just your your job should be a service to society. On some level, like I think, and I, so I suspect there's a bit of like, we don't get it, so it's a bit weird and couldn't <laughs> do something we understand better. Because <laughs> it's weird because you're doing it, you're technically your job is one of those you could put it into more so than like most jobs that it's doing a service I to society. So. <laughs> I hope so. Like I said, like I think conservative family, great people. Like I feel like I'm painting a really bad picture of them. They're great people. <laughs> Very loving and proud of me. We assume that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's just like a bit of... Oh, okay, Rana's off on one of her things, doing something that we don't understand. <laughs> oh, here she goes, bloody Baba. <laughs> <laughs> to give you some context, both of my parents are doctors. My older sister's a doctor. My brother does something important on Collins Street in Melbourne. My other sister did something similar but is now a homemaker, like very kind of conservative, respectful stuff. And I left school and did a creative arts degree, which like blew their minds. <laughs> you know, like one of the subjects was called Nymphs, Sluts and Madonnas. Like it just, <laughs> it was, I just went and did that. And so that paints a bit of a picture of what I mean. Like they're just like, and they were supportive. They're just like, we don't get it. Why, <laughs> Why are you Such a that? black sheep. They're like, like, we should have put more limits in when she was young. <laughs> And now this is what happens if you let, you let your kids watch Degrassi High. This is what happens. <laughs> it's that bloody Drake and it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like because, yeah, it's something which I think I've found as well and some people use it as proof of why, oh, all this whinging SJW stuff's bullshit because so many people within the culture itself don't give a shit. But it's like that's because they got other things to do and they just cop it sweet because they're like, I'm not going to spend my time on this. I've got to go do others. That doesn't mean they wouldn't prefer it to be different. <laughs> it's no. just... They got more impressing stuff. So especially like, uh, I don't know, with your parents coming in the 70s, I imagine it would have been pretty pretty racist back then, to be honest, whitest like Australia. Uh, yeah, they came when the white Australia policy had just been abolished. So there's still the kind of residue of that. But they had the privilege of coming as skilled migrants. Australia needed doctors then, so... It's sort of like, it was like a double-edged sword. Like they were valued in a lot of ways, but they also experienced a lot of kind of underhanded racism and, and feeling really on the outer of society. Yeah, the standard experience. And I'm guessing that they make a whole bunch of friends who are also from India, so they kind of like kept up that connection point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And growing up, we only ever hung out with other Muslim, Indian Muslim families. Like it was very much that was your community and that's who you spend time with and school friends there for school time and that's it, you know. All right, so they did go very much on 
which again, every culture does when they first come to a country. Absolutely. They like to sit in their little burrows until eventually it just spreads out and scatter yeah. everywhere. Which is good, like, which was a good thing in a lot of ways because it taught me to be able to mix in with different sides of society, like different communities. So, you know, I could easily, growing up, I went to a private school, which was predominantly white kids. So I was able to meld into that world and I still had a lot of connection to my culture and community because on the weekends we were spending time with um, the other Indian families. So it's actually, looking back, it was actually quite a nice way to grow up. To go back, so that's why I was asking about that though, like in terms of, because uh, you were talking about how you feel like the world might look and you're relating to the character for the same reason internally. I do think that, I, I just think it's interesting personally, like as in, because it's so weird how you've got probably, um, society as a whole, which for whatever reason have certain stereotypes in their head. So when they look at you, uh, Indian Muslim wearing hijab and stuff, they probably don't see the, you as the whole person that you are for cultural reasons. But then you've also got your family on the other side who in a weird way are almost seeing you the same way the culture's seeing you as well in terms of like putting you into a specific block and not seeing the whole you. There's actually a unity there from both sides. <laughs> it's fun. It's so fun to have that. Great. I don't know. I don't know what it's like. So is that too much? Is that just like, yeah, so no one gets you is what I'm saying, all right? (laughs) No one. I don't know what to say to that, like, because I guess, like I was saying before, I don't really know what it's like for everybody else, though. Um, Only, like, when I talk to friends, sometimes they're like, yeah, no, we don't have it. We don't have that added layer. (laughs) But, you know, I also gain so much from having these layers of identity. One of which for me, and you see this coming out in the book too, like is understanding the world on a whole other level and a maturity that comes with that. We would go to India pretty much every summer to visit my grandparents and going from such a young age to a country like that. My family didn't come from poverty, but it's everywhere in India. And so you're exposed to it from a very young age and you understand the world then in a completely different way. And I'll forever be grateful for that, to have had my world open up like that. Yeah, no, I, I, again, I actually can relate because I we used to go back to Greece all the time, even when I was younger. Mm. Especially when my dad was from like a little village, he'd go there and you'd play with other kids and it's like just, it, didn't, it wasn't the level of poverty as much. It was just, just, a, just a completely different way of life. And even now I've got a cousin who a few years ago gave up on like there was no jobs around. He always preferred being on his own and farming. So he actually became a shepherd. Like yeah, five yeah. or six hours ago there and he lives like old school. Like he's got a he's got like quite a big like cattle, I guess, and stuff like that. But it is very much just this very old fashioned lifestyle where he basically barely has electricity and stuff. And you just go there and you're like, man, the perspective switch to what you're we're doing, it's just I just was like picturing writing on your passport card or on your forms, like your occupation is shepherd. Like that is that's cool. <laughs> I really want to be able to do that one day. Yeah. <laughs> just, like you just say, I don't think imagine any of them looking at you, right, your occupation, <laughs> inclusivity and diversity person. They'd be like, AFL. They're like, I don't know any of these words. <laughs> I don't think there are Greek versions of it. I don't know how to explain who I am anymore, to be honest. I, I write social worker because that's that's, I suppose, the profession that I did study eventually. So, so the other part of it is uh, the the book from looking at it was um, the love story element, which seems to be a part of it from my very high level understanding of it. Was that something you 
felt like you related to in some way? Like as in that idea of is there something that you wanted or something that you had? I have an amazing love story in my life, but it's really long and I feel like I can't go into it because we'll be here forever. You can summarise anything in like two seconds. Um, so in our faith tradition, we have arranged marriages or what I would call facilitated marriages and I was, I had one of those um, that basically didn't work out. And while that was happening, I met my partner who at the time wasn't Muslim and we couldn't be together. And, you know, long story short, he, unbeknownst to me and with no hope of being with me, converted to Islam because he decided to look into it and see if, what this thing was that was keeping us apart. And he converted and then my arranged marriage didn't, work and so we ended up being together so we met at uni and then like years later got to be together it's so much more complicated than that but that is the short version my god yeah it's definitely more like that's crazy that is beautiful it's a (laughs) it's a bollywood story to be honest it's like a bollywood love story if you hear the full version but so in that sense, like, I, ha- I definitely related to it. But this Coconut Children's, the story in it is very much a, an adolescent love story and it's so beautiful in the way it's, it's written. But the thing that I related to the most is how boy crazy she is and that was me. <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I still am. That's still me. <laughs> <laughs> she just is like she's obsessed with this guy Vince and just that feeling of being absolutely obsessed with a guy when you're that age and the feelings that come up as a teenager when you've got a crush your first relationship her and her friend have this curiosity around sex and they find porn and just their just their like squeamish squeamishness but also interest in it all of that was like what I was like as a teenage girl. So (laughs) to me, that was the part that was like, oh, this is, I feel really seen right now. (laughs) And really like, you know, not the, not the pretty girl and not the girl who people would assume has some kind of sexual drive, but having it anyway and, and expressing it in a different way to what you assume teenage girls will do so. Okay, so let's so it's less to do with the love story element and more to do with watching porn and feeling bad about it. So. Yeah, pretty much. I was so proud of myself for a while there getting this love story angle. <laughs> Turns out, nah, you were just loving the feeling naughty is doing naughty things. Right. <laughs> I know I've totally added myself. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> no, thank you so much for the honesty. I think we're going to have to call it there. I always ask everyone, do you feel like you've felt any new connections with the book after our conversation or lead up to the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. It's probably more something you've said about and something that I didn't really cotton on to when I read it was that kind of in feeling like you were someone on the inside that you weren't really representing from the outside and but then you saying that while I always think about it as the outside world seeing me one way, but similarly my own family seeing me in a way that's not necessarily me either, like that's kind of a new new perspective for me. So I'm going to have to do some therapy now. Thank you. <laughs> it seems to be a regular feature of this. I'm just pointing, I'm not even saying it's true. I'm just like, ah. Oh. 
Are you a cat? Like, have you done some counselling training or something? Because your observations are stellar. No, it's just really obvious, Rana, to be honest. <laughs> no, but I've listened to your previous episodes and you're very good. I think that's an option for you. Oh, let's see. If, if, if the lucrative world of podcasting doesn't work out... <laughs> I'll settle for bloody therapy, all right? <laughs> no, but uh, that's great to hear. So thank you very much. Um, I guess we'll just call it there, yeah. So that was an awesome chat. Thank you. And thanks. Awesome. Thank you. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com.